Welcome to a new episode of Walks, where we go on walks with people from all walks of life. Today, I guess it's more of a dance than a walk, because we'll be chatting about salsa and, and how to build a salsa studio. So our guest today is, is Jay Barkley, who's actually my first ever uh, salsa teacher, and he's the head of the Salsa Foundation at Melbourne, which I'd say is either one of the or the most successful salsa studios in, in Melbourne, Australia. He was born in the Philippines, uh, moved to Australia when he was four, and has been dancing salsa for the last 14 years. Out of those 14, he actually started the Salsa Foundation 11 years ago. Uh, and for context, they have between 800 to 1,000 students every week, which is pretty crazy. And I've actually uh, been obviously a student myself, so I've seen how um, kind of like busy those classes are. So, Jay, excited to have you on board. We have a school of uh, 800 to 1,000 students a week in attendance in one location. And we went from 1,000 students a week to zero students overnight. Thank you, man. Thank you. They say your first teacher was responsible for everything that you do from that point forward. So uh, behave yourself. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's exciting to have you on board. And for context, for anyone listening, so I started dancing salsa, I think it was, it's been quite a few years. I think it's been like six years maybe um, because I was doing my, my year abroad in, in Melbourne, Australia. I was um, pretty poor at the time. So I was Googling what, free things I could do in the city and taking a free salsa lesson at the Salsa Foundation came up. And I definitely remember that first beginner's class. I don't know if you, if you guys still have like the free class. For yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah. That just, uh, that, that, that's what, that's what like grabbed my attention. And I remember going and I've never felt probably more awkward dancing than, than in that <laughs> class. Cause I, I've never done anything um, I guess like technical or proper. I mean, like the dancing I'd done was maybe on on nights out when not that many people were watching. So remember <laughs> doing that, feeling like an absolute robot with the shimmy, especially which now I feel significantly more confident. But that demo that you gave with I think it was a uh, um, Angeline that you were dancing with. Um, you just gave a demo, and I remember thinking like, wow, I don't I don't care how much this costs. I need to get to that level. <laughs> um, Good times, man. Good times. Because how many how many people go through that um, through that class every week? Through the beginners class, well, we typically would have about a hundred to one hundred and forty attendees okay. uh, on an average week, and then there's busier weeks in the warmer weather. And um, so, look, over the eleven years that we've been running, we've had over sixty thousand people now come through that free beginners class. So uh, it's it's our way of. Um, sharing salsa with with our city with our country so that's that's why we do those classes it's really good people sort of um are really happy to give it a go uh that's one of the best things about it we make it we make it as relaxed and as fun and entertaining yeah. as possible that's pretty unique i mean sixty thousand people that you've that you've touched in some way or form through salsa that's uh that's at the at the at the least a, a conversation started that's pretty that's pretty cool um so Talking about salsa, before we dive into the actual studio and obviously the numbers of kind of people that you have going through it are pretty insane now, but I can imagine it was 
very different when you started it and even before you even started the studio, right? How did you personally get into salsa? Uh, well, look, man, to be honest, I used to, uh, I used to be more into other things, sports and martial arts. And I was um, yeah. nursing a shoulder injury from some jujitsu that I was doing. I was, I was training in jujitsu and I, um, it's inevitable. You always get injured. So I was nursing a shoulder injury and a friend of mine sort of dragged me out. I was feeling a little bit bummed out that I couldn't train, a little bit down. So he said, look, I'm going to take you out. Picked me up, didn't tell me where we're going, took me to this Latin club. I was called Copacabana you know, here in Melbourne. Yeah. And um, the first I noticed when I walked through the door, I was like, oh, my God, there's so many beautiful people here. Um, yeah. And my friend had been dancing for a few years, and he just uh, he was like Mr. Popular in there. Girls were like lining up to dance with him. And I was like, I need to learn this. This is my new skill. And I was like, sure. as long as I, while I'm injured and I can't train, in martial arts, I'll start dancing. I figured that would be less less uh, impact physically. So I, I took that up and then I, from that time, I never went back to martial arts. I was like, this is where I, this is my new thing. This is, I was like, this is, there's like, there's five women for every man here. And when I was training martial arts, it was just nothing but dudes all around me. And so uh, I was one of those guys who got trapped by the, uh, the allure. Um, but yeah, I love it. That's interesting. So if there's one takeaway from, from the from the podcast, it's that martial arts, bad ratios, you get hurt, salsa the complete opposite. So <laughs> exactly. that does does seem like a no brainer. So you go into that first um to that first, I guess, experience. You go to Copacabana, you see what it's about. Do you then just pretty much like enroll in a class or do you just start doing it by yourself? How, I was I uh, I got dragged onto the dance floor that night by um by a really attractive woman and uh, she said don't worry I'm going to look after you I'll show you how to dance and she was very patiently trying to teach me the basic steps and she gave up after about 10 minutes I was terrible I couldn't I couldn't pick it up at all um, yeah. she gave me the encouragement that I needed to uh, to go enroll in a class and um, my first teacher was actually doing free beginner salsa classes at the time all those years ago 14 years ago um, yeah and I kind of credit our model to her she gave us that idea. She was one of the first, I think, in Melbourne to start doing that model. And um, she took me under her wing and trained me up. And then I actually um, I became obsessed with it. And I was training every day, pretty much. Uh, I just, um, as, as, as many times as I could, I, had, I, had, I think I had five different practice partners I'd have on rotation. And I'd, they'd come over one on a Monday, one on a Tuesday. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I'd be going out to the parties and social dancing. So I was dancing all the time. So you're dancing pretty much every day. Where Did you do that for like a few months? Was that like a few years? How long was that? I did that for about three, four months at the beginning. And then after that, at three, four months, as I started to pick it up, because I was practicing so much, uh, yeah. I decided to travel for a bit and dance everywhere that i traveled and anyway i spent a few weeks in um in la and i found a whole bunch of teachers in la and i i started doing lessons about six seven hours a day for i think three to four weeks i was there uh, and i just trained six seven hours a day i just i just blew a whole bunch of money and i just absorbed as much knowledge as i could and i trained as hard as i could for as long as i could and one thing that I do remember from my experience picking up salsa is that there's obviously a 
a fee, I guess, associated with like learning. There's you need to pay for the class, or even if you go out on a night out to one of the clubs, like you'd need to pay normally either like an entrance fee or there's there's at least some sort of cost. Um, so were you just doing this sort of like part time or like after work or like how are you funding? these sort of like, I guess, like this experience or even like when you went to LA, like how did that work, like funding what? Oh, well, prior to my dancing life, I was in uh, several online businesses. So I had a couple of um, software businesses that we, myself and a couple of my partners did. And I had a chain of personal training studios. I had three gyms that I owned and, um, and I wanted to get out of the fitness industry at that time because I was just the early mornings I couldn't do anymore. And, and I sort of saw that the industry was changing. There were so many different, uh, they, they suddenly made online personal training courses. Uh, all that, that was all the qualification you needed to become a personal trainer. So when that came out, I thought, well, we're going to get this flood of PTs coming in. So the, the industry is going to change. And so I, uh, I told my partners at the time I wanted to get out of the business and they bought me up. Um, and then I got an offer for, my marketing business, my online marketing business. And um, I sold that out to a venture capital firm. And yeah. uh, basically that funded, I had a mini retirement. And during that mini retirement, that's when I discovered um, discovered dancing. Very interesting. And how, how old were you with, with all this sort of like mini retiring? Uh, 21, 21, 22 when that happened. So after extensive years of working, you, you retire. Yeah, exactly right. I did it hard. Fair, fair enough. Um, so how did that then, I guess, it seems that like you already had an entrepreneurial spirit, which is, which is really cool. How did that passion for salsa, you're dancing for a few months, like every day, you obviously go abroad and dance abroad and learn abroad. So you also have this entrepreneurial spirit. How does all of that get combined into you deciding one day, okay, I'm going to build a salsa studio. Honestly, I didn't build this studio for myself. I, uh, my girlfriend at the time, she was one of the best dancers in Australia and she was yeah. working for, I think three or four different schools, just teaching casual classes for them. And uh, I said, look, you got, you're really talented. Obviously, why don't we start up your own classes? Uh, it gives you her the, the sort of the freedom to to make her own timetable and do the classes the way she wants to do. So we uh, started this school together and she did the classes. I didn't teach at all at the beginning and I did the yeah. business side of it. I did all the marketing and I did all the setting up the structure of the school and all that kind of stuff. And um, we did it like that. And then when we broke up, she decided she wanted to move to Sydney and I had a choice at that time. We'd built up a, a bit of a community. So we had about a hundred students at that time. And um, everyone knew it was the uh, Jay and Angela show because Angela, her, her name was Angela. It was the Jay and Angela yeah. show. And it was like, we're a bit like we were the mum and the dad and there was a hundred babies. And um, yeah. when we had the divorce, uh, because I was in the back end of the things, uh, they didn't really connect with me that much. Like Angela was the face, face of it and... Um, and, you know, everyone went with mom. And so at that point, I had a, d- a decision to make. I was like, should I wind up the school or should I continue teaching? And um, I decided to continue and I'd take over the classes myself and I'd run the business side of it myself as well. And I uh, sort of restructured everything. 
uh, I, I, you know, had a, I had about a year's experience of running that school from the back end and seeing what was working, what was not at that point. And I sort of um, decided to go all in on it at that point and uh, really change a lot of the structure around the school to really be more inclusive and try to get everyone in Melbourne to dance and really get everyone involved. And uh, so we're, I remodeled the whole school basically at that point and, uh, and we took off from there. The school just exploded in terms of um, the number of students just went nuts, really, really. Yeah. So the so the so the school goes through through a divorce, as you were saying, like the the mom and the dad are kind of like splitting ways. Was that ever um, like how, I guess like how complicated was was that just like going through that experience of um, like having that school in between two people, and then like each person kind of like splitting ways? Well, look, the the school we had from a business standpoint, the school we had managed to save about fifty thousand dollars at that point. So. We yeah. had, she had her other job and I had my other job, my other businesses running at the time as well. And so we didn't need the income. So everything the school made, we put back into the school. And at that point we were like, look, let's just close it up. Uh, we'll go 50, 50 on, on the money that's in the business. And then, so she took her half and she was like, are you going to close the school? Or are you going to keep it going? And I was like, oh, look, I'll give it a go. I'll keep it going. Um, and so look, it was pretty clean. We're, we're very happy. Since then she actually came back and, and became partners and not partners in the business, but she came back and became key management in the business um, on two separate occasions, actually. So she came back to Melbourne for a while, lived with us, helped us run the school. Um, and so there was never any hard feelings with it there. Uh, it was pretty clean, but it was just from the person standpoint, from the um, student standpoint, it was like they had someone had to be the villain at that point. And a lot of them blamed the breakup on, me, even though it was, you know, a very mutual thing. Interesting. Um, and with, so with the studio, I guess, taking a step back, when it starts, you do the business side, she's doing the teaching, and obviously when um, the breakup happens, you take up both sides. From the, the business perspective, like, what are the first few things that you do when you're like, cool, let's put this together, let's create some sort of studio? Like what are the first, I guess, action items that need to get done? Well, I think the first thing that I, I think a lot of people when, cause I, I do, I mentor a lot of school owners now from other states and other countries actually. So I, um, I help them with their processes, but to set it up, I think a lot of people fall into the trap of, there's a little bit of vanity around it. So for some people, they have to have a really nice studio. They have to have really expensive this and expensive that and i'm like look the dance industry isn't really known for being a lucrative industry if you're going to put yourself in the hole straight away and start opening up with an expensive studio lease or something like that then you're going to be under the pump and you're going to make different decisions when you when it comes time to building that thing and if you're under the pressure of building a business because you have to make a certain amount of sales or whatever the case might be, then the way that you operate on a day-to-day -day basis is going to be a lot different. And uh, we were able to really maintain a low overhead business, which allowed us to sort of make decisions and take opportunities that we really thought were the right ones for us and say no to a lot of others because we didn't have the pressure of that overhead. So that's the first thing I would say. If you put yourself under the pump, you dig yourself a hole before you've even started especially in an industry like dance, which is so touch and go. It's, uh, it's, it's very difficult to get it right. 
And that balance also between your artistic preferences as a dancer, because dancers have a very artistic preference and, and by, by definition, they're very in touch with themselves. And so there's a bit of an ego thing around it. It's, it's almost to them like the school and the class has to represent who they are as a person. So they want the best of it. And it, and it sort of makes it difficult for them to get off the ground, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. That would be the first thing I would say. And the second thing I would say is you need to uh, you need to always put yourself in the perspective of the people that you're teaching. So when you're teaching a beginner, you teach them as if they're a beginner. You don't teach how good you are as a teacher. You teach how good they are as a student. So you always speak to them in a language and at the level of their understanding. And I think that's something that the entire industry has had wrong for a long, long time. Uh, teachers usually teach at the level that they are and they expect students to find their own way up to that level. And that's why the industry typically in most places has remained really small and hasn't had that growth. So those are the two basically I'd say. Yeah. So almost like remain more frugal, especially at the start, just make sure you're being hyper-conscious with where you're spending, which, which makes sense. And then almost like adapting, I guess, your teachings and the way you're communicating the, the different moves and I guess even broader than that to the level of the students. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, look, if you want to, if you want to grow your community, then you need to make it as inclusive as possible and lower the barrier to entry as much as possible. And by definition, the dance industry has tried to increase its exclusiveness, which is the exact opposite of inclusiveness. So if they're trying to be exclusive, they're actually pushing away people who may become part of their community or may become part of their industry. And so they are keeping themselves small in a way. If that makes sense. That's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that I've um, noticed from a more business perspective now that I work at a, not at a studio, but at a startup here in the States is, I guess the the frugality in a way is important in the sense that you need a like at the start you have tons of ideas, tons of things that you want to do, but pretty limited resources. So you do need to be hyper conscious with where you're spending. So it's interesting to see how I guess the same sort of model applies to an entrepreneurial venture if it's in the software space, which is kind of on my side of things, or even in the dancing space like uh, TSF. So in software, it's to improve your product, it becomes more technically superior on the back end and it becomes more user-friendly on the front end, right? And it's kind of the same yeah. thing with dance. I know it's a different industry completely, but you have all these teachers, which are actually, most teachers are actually dancers themselves, are actually artists. And as artists, they have this conflicting idea that they want to make their product more technical on the front end they want it to appear technical. And by doing that, they, they just make themselves out of touch with all of the people who would become their students. They forget about making the front end, the interface of it as user-friendly as possible. That's an interesting analogy. I like that. So one of the, I guess, the, the things that I always like with, with any of these sort of like walks that um, I go on or any of the experiences that I hear is learning a bit more about the the extremes almost to put it that way like the moments where 
do you someone experience the biggest challenge or like the moments where someone experienced the biggest joy based on an experience so to to go into that a bit more curious to know about um maybe a, a story or a moment where you feel you experienced like the biggest challenge whilst building tsf well actually the biggest challenge building tsf is happening right now we are very interesting. The, good time absolutely man. and this is a really really um really interesting time not just for our studio but the entire industry and of course the entire world with the covid shutdowns and yeah. stuff but this has sort of forced the entire industry to come to a grinding halt and everybody's in the exact same boat so you've got business owners who were at war a week ago suddenly they're all on the same facebook chat trying to give each other ideas of how to stay afloat and it's um it's been really for me, that's an uplifting thing. Like I can see people have have that human side of them as well. Like it's business and it's personal. There's been business and personal conflicts for years and years and years. But then when when it really hits the fan, people can come together. So this is the um, the hugest problem that we're facing at the moment. We have a school of uh, 800 to 1,000 students a week in attendance in one location. And we went from 1,000 students a week to zero students overnight. Uh, and we did this preemptively before the government told us to shut down non-essential businesses. We we sort of put two and two together. We're like, look, we have up to 120 people in one class. That's a lot of people rotating yeah. partners, sharing one space, touching each other's hands and um, sweating. And you know what I mean? There's a lot of um, opportunity there for, for the virus to spread. And um, we just proactively we were like okay if, if there's anywhere that this might spread it would be right here and we have people coming in from all different countries and and all areas of the city and all this kind of stuff so so we we shut that down and i think this is the biggest challenge we face personally and the entire industry has personally as well i, I already know of several schools who who can't pay the rent on their studios Look, going back to what i said at the beginning of keeping your um your frugality, especially in the early stages of your business. I know a lot of places who opened a new dance school a couple of months before the pandemic hit and they are signed up to leases, signed up to all these overheads and they were just barely breaking even at the time and now they've gone from barely breaking even to really deep in the hole in there. And a lot of them, even one of the, one of the bigger schools that I know of in Sydney is yeah. facing potential, having to wrap it up potentially close down the entire business maybe even bankruptcy yeah yeah that's that's crazy i um even for for whatever reason when i was uh formulating that question it just did not hit me that now could be the, the oh, toughest time which makes sense. right in it at the moment um, yeah yeah so with um with that i guess i'm curious so you go from uh 800 to 1000 students in a week to zero pretty much in the space of a day or whenever you decided to to close what's what's happening now like how are you keeping the the business afloat like how are you feeling what are you thinking about would love to hear a bit more about that well look we went to great lengths to structure our business in a in a way that wouldn't self-destruct if something like this happened i mean I, i'm not going to say that we foresaw a pandemic shutting us down but um I, I came from a school of thought, like when I was trained by my business mentors, they always taught me what's your, what's your doomsday scenario, play that out in your head. 
then act as if that is a very real possibility and make sure when you structure yourself, you don't trap yourself somewhere that doomsday would wipe you out. And um, from day one, that's how I've run the business. I've always made sure that uh, all of our financial obligations as a business weren't like we were always ahead of those. And also, like, I guess one example is our, our studio lease. Our studio lease, we, we have, we're locked in, we're protected by a, a deal, a contract we've done with the, with the venue owner where we have protection that we can stay there, but we're not obligated to pay rent if we're not operating classes. So the day that we stopped classes, we stopped paying rent. And that's the biggest expense for the vast majority of dance studios. And I know a lot of pay places who are, that's the thing that's going to sink them right now because they have these leases they have to pay the rent on. So for the, from the first standpoint, like as soon as this thing hit, we looked at all of our expenses. All of our instructors are um, subcontractors. We, or the vast majority of them are subcontractors. And we yeah. actually usually work a lot with, with um, instructors who have professional jobs as well. So we... We do that because culturally we want a place where our instructors are still relatable to the average person. Um, if you have someone who's a full-time dancer, they kind of get caught up in dance world and they, they don't like it. It's, it's a little bit funny because they're kind of not really living in the real world that everyone has to deal with. And uh, we find our instructors are a lot more personally relatable because they have lives outside of dancing. And so by coincidence, because we choose that way, because we choose to run our culture that way, we have a lot of employees or subcontractors, if you will, who aren't under pressure to continue to work in dance in the meantime. So I know a lot of places who are, are really stressed because they have to, well, they, they want to help their instructors pay their bills, but there's no income coming into the business. So we didn't have that pressure. So. And then from a personal standpoint, um, again, my mentors, I'm, I'm very blessed because my mentors early on who taught me what I know in business, they always taught me to diversify my own finances. So we have income streams from outside, completely outside our industry. We're, we're in property. We, we have investments going on. So my family is, we are thankfully in a financially stable position. We're, we're fine. We're, we haven't. I wouldn't go as far as to say we haven't been affected, but we could yeah. we could subsist indefinitely until things turn back around. Um, it's more so from a mental standpoint that is difficult because it's just we're so used to putting all of our effort and energy into this school and our time, and then all of a sudden just came screeching to a grinding halt. Um, but from a business standpoint, we are okay. And we're, we've been in a point now where we're, we've been able to, to give our online classes for free to our students as a way That's to support cool. them through this COVID thing as well. Whereas I know a lot of the other schools that I work with and I talk to, they've had to pivot to an online model and they feel really bad for asking students to pay the same for an online class as they would for a normal class or a real life class. Um, but they, they've been forced in that position because they have to keep their keep paying their bills and keep paying their rent. Um, so yeah, yeah. No, that's um, that's uh, that's great to hear that things are 
even though I can imagine, as you said, mentally it's a bit of a hit. It's good to hear that the studio is doing well and that the the way you set it up um, has is effective and almost like pandemic proof. Even though you didn't envision a, a pandemic, as I guess like yeah, most people um, coming up, but that's uh that's pretty that's pretty unique. Um, I guess like very useful business advice as a whole, the way that you thought about it beforehand and even like the way that you diversified. I think like personal finances is something that a lot of people now, depending on the industry, they were very much invested in an industry that took a hit. That could be any of the ones, I guess, that required people being in person. Like they're they're definitely taking and suffering quite a bit if they didn't have that uh, diversification. So that's um that's very cool to hear. Um, so to, to start to wrap it up, because I know it's the – um, still Mother's Day uh, in in Australia, and it's the start of it here in 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 the U.S. Although I'm the only person probably in the in the in the community uh, awake because of the time difference, which that's probably don't want to go into the to I guess the time differences one all, but that's pretty fascinating that we're like 13 hours uh, yeah. um, that you're 13 or 14 hours ahead. But that's maybe for another conversation. One of the one of the other things I'd love to hear a bit more about is. With, with salsa as a whole, I mean, you've been dancing for 14 years, which is a big chunk of, of time. As an individual, in terms of, like, your values, um, how do you feel like salsa has played a role in, like, shaping this? I think it's played as equal a role in shaping my values as my values have played in shaping our school. Um, from a personal standpoint, just the challenge of learning something new uh, what it taught me early on is uh, to be comfortable with being horrible at something at the beginning and to recognize that yeah. that literally is as cliche as this sounds. It's so true. It's part of your journey. Like you have to go through that time and embracing it actually helps you get through it faster. A lot of people try to avoid that feeling of being terrible at something. And so they drag it out as long as they can to procrastinate through it. And it actually ends up costing them more time. And they would have gotten there a lot faster had they embraced being terrible at it at the beginning, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, also, salsa yeah. dancing as a partnership dance. Also, really, there's a lot of parallel in the life lessons that it teaches you as, as a, from a perspective of, of a male dancer, we call it a lead, uh, how you have to think ahead when you're dancing and how you have to dance in relation to your partner and in relation to a different partner in relation to different circumstances, you that adaptability and that thinking ahead and that communicating what you're after and then also covering up for any shortcomings or mistakes that your partner makes as well. Those are uh, really parallel to life lessons that, that you learn throughout the years. And then the third thing I would say would be the community aspect of it. Uh, being in charge of a a large community of students has sort of taught me how to how to build these communities by strengthening the uh, ability to communicate between community members and creating a safe space for them to really uh, make their own group friendship circles. We've had people come into the studio and, and who have met their significant under, other who they've married and had children with. And we have people who are lifelong friends who met in class and people who are friends yeah. all around the world, people on the other side of the world who, who will take in and house and feed and show around a visitor from another country who they met in Melbourne. It's, it's, uh, those are the three main things that I think I've taken away 
in my salsa life. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think like, yeah, there's one thing that I can definitely advocate for is the, the sense of community. I think like the type of culture and even how bought in people are. Um, I think like the Salsa Foundation is probably the school that has done that the, the best of all the schools that I've been present at. I mean, it's as cliche as it sounds, it definitely did feel like a, like a, a family of sorts. I mean, like people, I remember like you were doing and you probably still do it or we're doing it before the pandemic, but you were doing, I think it was like celebrating like big holidays, like could be like Christmas or um, Halloween um, with like the entire sort of like group and class and had hundreds of people going to that. So I think that's very cool what you built, honestly, like from my perspective, having that community definitely helped. And I still have um, several friends that I, that I took from that. And even what you were saying at the start of feeling bad at something, I think, as I said at the, the start of the podcast, that definitely was a feeling that went through my mind at the start where I think most people, unless you've done, you've danced before, you feel pretty bad and you feel clunky and your feet are not really listening to your head and you're just all over the place. And I do remember the first few, I think like the first few months that procrastination definitely happened where I just pushed it out um, had a few had a few interesting experiences also social dancing where I'd either have someone not look very pleased when they were dancing with me or I even had one person stop mid-song which <laughs> definitely got me thinking and that especially was when I was like wow like this is probably not going that well but it was when I embraced that and realized like look there's a lot of people who are actually like not that good and everyone who's good now like probably 100 through, through the which they weren't that good so that's very cool and I think even what you were saying of people letting that procrastination or that fear take over and just like pushing it out. I feel most people never even like build that skill because they just say, Hey, I'm not good at this. Everyone's amazing. I'm not going to continue salsa dancing. I'm not going to continue whatever new skill they were building up. So it's cool to, to hear that from your perspective because as someone who's seen you dance and anyone who, who hasn't just like, YouTube Jay Barkley, you are a phenomenal dancer. So the fact that you felt clunky at the start is, is, is pretty liberating, I guess, for anyone here. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Sweet. Um, well, I guess like last, last thing from your end is to wrap it up, any sort of final tips as a business owner or as a dancer to give to anyone listening? Uh, yeah. Look, I think my tip for as a business owner and the tip as a dancer actually has a very similar ring to it. It is, as I said earlier, embrace that part at the beginning, the difficult part. That's the best part. One day you'll look back on it and you'll be like, I wish I actually embraced and enjoyed that time. Uh, whether you're a dancer who's become a world champion and you look back, I, I've spoken to countless people who have become the best at dancing in the world. And they look back and say, oh, I wish I had more videos of when I first started dancing. Um, because it's a time that they, it's, it's all a blur now that they've achieved what they've achieved. And the same in business. Like yeah. a lot of people, when they reach a certain certain point of success, they forgot what brought them there in the first place. And I think that there's a lot of lessons that you learn early on that if you keep them with you, will allow you, it'll serve you for the rest of your career, whether it's as a dancer or as a business person, if you hold on to those lessons, what got you from one level to the next level, while it might not be exactly the same for the next level, the principles are the same. And so 
that's my biggest takeaway yeah. and my biggest advice to both dancers and to business people. That makes sense. And even what you said about getting having more videos from when you start, I mean, like the, the least it does is produce great content for oh, when you're looking back and reminiscing. So, um, awesome. Well, hey, I appreciate you hopping on, especially given that it's uh, Mother's Day and I know you have um, a great family and you're a father of two. So enjoy the rest of that. And yeah, that was Jay Barkley chatting about salsa. Um, yeah, appreciate Thank you hopping you. on.